Right, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here at Sycamore. We're continuing our walk through the book of Ecclesiastes together, this uh, enigmatic and interesting book that we're kind of framing it as it asks the questions that the rest of Scripture answers for us. This morning we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. And we also have a children's version for you on page 11 as well, and I'll be referring to both of those throughout the service. So <clears throat> they're calling it the great resignation. I'm sure you guys have heard of this, trying to go along with the great depression or the great recession that starting last spring, as the economy sort of started ramping up, as some COVID restrictions started being lifted, people apparently started clocking out. People quit their jobs in record-breaking numbers. And even though many places are hiring, either many people don't want to work or didn't want to work where they were, and so they changed jobs. And everybody has their own reasons for doing so. But ultimately, they looked at their quality of life with this job and said, I'm better off without it. And that struggle to make our work mesh with our life, our quality of life, for, for many people is a very deep and abiding issue, and it's right where the writer of Ecclesiastes ended last week. Last week, he, he was trying to give his life to his wealth and his excess, and he saw it didn't work to fulfill him. So he reexamined that whole project with wisdom, trying to kind of exert control over his life. Maybe he can find some wisdom there, but it didn't work. It only made him more frustrated because death, he says, is looming out there for all of us, and so he fears that he will be forgotten. So instead, now he looks at work itself. If death ruins his accomplishments, okay, well, then maybe a life well lived through work, maybe that will counteract the emptiness he feels in his heart. So if you would, would you please follow along now, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 18 through 26. This is God's Word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. <clears throat> there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, <clears throat> as we come before your word, we ask, Lord, that you would give us 
the ability to be honest with ourselves about what we really look to in life for fulfillment and satisfaction? Would you help us to be candid with how our heart treats our work? We ask, Father, that you would show us the rest that is available in Jesus. We pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we started out this book, seeking pleasure was about freedom. It was about freedom from the emptiness he felt in his soul. And then he really tried to use wisdom to gain control of his life. And here what he's going to do is he's looking at everything he's lost control over. He says, you know, even if I gain greatness, it will not last. My legacy is not guaranteed because death, again, will destroy any attempt he has to find meaning, to find significance or purpose in his toil. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Life under the sun is toil, but with God, there's joy in the journey. So he starts off right away hating under the sun. In verse 17, he hated life. And now here in verse 18, he hates toil under the sun. And toil is very much like the word that we have in English for labor. Think of all the different things that labor can mean. It can mean the actual act of working. It can be a noun like a group of people versus management. It can also have to do with birthing a child. And it kind of contained all those ideas in the Hebrew as well. So really what he's saying here is all that stuff I could do with my life, I hate it, hate it all. I mean, this is deeper than Peter from office space, you know, whining and I don't like my job and I'm not going to go anymore. Or maybe Alan Jackson singing, you know, it's five o'clock somewhere. Okay, this is more than that. This is a deep heartache about the work of a lifetime being meaningless because of death. I mean, Solomon, we know, was an effective and accomplished king. His life of toil was not effortless, and he got a lot of self-importance from his work. He gave his heart, he told us earlier, to what he accomplished, and now he hates it. But you know, we do that too, don't we? When you really pour your life into something that you think is going to make you happy and bring you meaning, and when it fails, you loathe it with as much power as you loved it before, don't you? And we, we can do that with people who disappoint us too, can't we? Well, Solomon's doing it here. It's why he hates. And in his disappointment, he asks, what will happen of the fruit of our labor of toil? Look at me at the second half of verse 18 and all of verse 19. He says, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master for all which I toiled. And that word master there tells us what's going on here. He wanted a legacy so badly last week we saw in verse 16. But now he says, even if I do something noteworthy, I can't control my legacy. He expresses a universal concern that we all have here. We have no control over how the next generation will use our stuff. Maybe they'll use it wisely. Maybe not. I mean, it's speculation, but I can imagine Solomon is here looking at his own sons maybe in regret for this project of seeking pleasure and wisdom at the expense of mentoring and preparing them for leadership. And he's asking, how will we know if those who come after us will care as much as we do? And the answer is you can't. And so if you've built your life around accomplishing this thing, 
It brings despair to all of your work, all of your toil when you realize you can't control what's going to happen to it. This is, again, this is more than the regret of a workaholic. This is about the heart that causes someone to be a workaholic. Look at verse 22 with me. We ask this question. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? See, how do we find real gain or purpose in life is what he's asking. The striving of heart is a deep longing or restlessness. This is an emotional, intellectual struggle to matter that he's really wrestling with all the work he's done in his life. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls on their verse 22, if you want to look on page 11. Here's how he did it. So seriously, what do we really get from all the trouble and stress of work in this life? For all his accomplishments, he can't control what the next guy is going to do. He just can't. So what's the point of achieving it if it's just going to go right out of your hands and maybe come to nothing? He thinks that his life under the sun, what, what a phrase that he's using to talk about living life without reference to God, what it's like to be in a fallen world that where things are broken. He thinks that his life under the sun will have no lasting value because he has no control. And so he hates all his toil. He hates his efforts to build his life. And so in verse 23, he admits a life of toil under the sun. A life lived without reference to God is full of affliction and pain. It gives him so much stress, he says, he has insomnia. Think about that. This text is, let's say, 3,000-ish years old. And here's this guy saying, my job is so stressful, it keeps me up at night. I don't know about you, but that kind of encourages me, but also really kind of depresses me. Like, for 3,000 years you've been thinking that? And why does all that stuff come to, your, come to your head at night? You ever notice that? Like what Solomon says here? I mean, the worry and the stress, it always attacks us as we're laying in bed trying to fall asleep, doesn't it? And I don't know about you, but there have been many times I've wanted to just cry out, y'all be quiet in there so I can go to sleep. Right? And Solomon says, people have been doing that for close to 3,000 years here, Hoss. It's not just you. Maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe things are pretty good for you. Well, praise the Lord. Fantastic. I'm not being sarcastic. But your neighbors are probably right here in Ecclesiastes, slogging it out with life under the sun, hating all the toil and effort it takes. I mean, do you ever wonder why we have such a hateful society? You ever thought about that? Why are people so quick to rage at others for the slightest provocation? And of course, it's other people. It's not us. It's because people made in God's image we're meant to be in relationship with him. And when we're alienated from him, we hate life. And we can't really understand why. We have nothing to, we don't know what to, what to do with that hate. Those of you who've been Christians for a long time, let passages like this remind you of how, how much our neighbors are harassed by sin and death when they don't know Jesus. Many of us have been Christians for so long. Yeah, we struggle with temptation, and yeah, sin makes us sad, but we're not really harassed by sin and death like we used to be. And we've forgotten what it's like to live without Christ. Let honest passages like this remind us of really what life without Christ looks like, and let it bring us to have compassion for our neighbors who have yet to encounter the grace of Jesus. We can forget how much hating there is under the sun. 
And the next thing he takes us to, it gets even better, is we get to, from hating, now we get to despair under the sun. Verse 20, he says, I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Did you check that out, what he just said? He gave his heart up. He stopped resisting and let himself be swallowed up by the despair. And the way he describes that in that verse is really profound, isn't it? It's like despair is right there all the time, looming, always waiting to get in. He's got to actively resist it, and he's just like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not resisting anymore. I'm giving my heart up. Just come on in. He lets it come. He's tired of fighting in his frustration, so he yields to it. John Bunyan, in his masterpiece, Pilgrim's Progress, captures the idea of despair here so well. He ha- um, for those of you not familiar, so he has a character named Christian who's on this journey of the Christian life. And at one of the points, he has a companion with him. I believe it's faithful at this point. And through a, a circum- series of circumstances, they get captured by a giant. And the giant's name is Despair. And giant Despair locks him in his dungeon. And the way Bunyan describes it is it's really, again, profound He says, despair comes every morning and beats them mercilessly. And then he always leaves them an implement of ending their own life and says, this is the only escape. This is the only escape. First day, he beats him and leaves him poison. Second day, he comes back and leaves him a rope. Third day, he leaves him a knife. He's like, I will beat you every day. And this is your only escape. That's, we don't want to talk about that, but that's pretty profound and accurate, isn't it? And many of you know I was a fire department chaplain, and, and this is an old statistic, 15 years old, but as of 2006, the statistics were that a firefighter committed suicide every three days. And so suicide prevention was a big deal. The Department of Homeland Security had this suicide prevention seminar, so my department paid for me to go to this. So I'm getting this, here I am at a DHS official training, so you know there's not going to be anything religious happening here, right? But it was actually really profound. One of the very first things that they taught us was that despair and darkness are real and they are out there and they're predatory. And first responders are the ones who encounter them routinely and they must actively fight to keep positive emotions in the face of that struggle against despair and darkness. In fact, they said it's an indication for us to watch out for. It's an indication of emotional health that they are conflicted, that they are in that struggle, that they are fighting and confronting darkness and despair. It's a sign of mental health. And they said, choosing not to fight, giving in to the despair is actually a lack of mental health, and it's a key indicator of contemplating suicide, which is what we see Solomon doing here. Now, maybe that's a bit extreme for some of you. Sorry. But despair is ready to overtake us at a moment's notice. I feel that. Your neighbors can feel it. Can we in the church admit it, that it's there? Some of you are bothered right now that a pastor would dare to admit that. Christians, especially pastors, are supposed to be happy. You can't have struggles. Jesus fixes us. Well, That's churchianity, it's not Christianity. Christians are forgiven and accepted by grace, but we still live in a world of despair. Christians are God's first responders, if you'll allow me to push the metaphor. Christians are God's first responders to a world filled with darkness and despair. 
And it's a sign of our health in Christ that we are actively engaged in recognizing that it's there and fighting against it. Because that struggle drives us to Jesus for more grace instead of looking to our toil to save us. I've had this conversation with several of you. I'm not going to out you individually. So let me just say it as a group. Okay, Christians in the room, hear me. If you sense that despair is right there, if despair is like a constant companion that you're often, if not always, having to push and keep at bay, that's not failure. That's success. Failure is here where he says, I'm done fighting. I've given up to despair. Being in that fight drives you to Jesus. And so it's success to recognize the despair and to fight against it. Going back to Bunyan. In the story, again, such a beautiful image he uses. In the story, all of a sudden, Christian comes to his senses and he remembers, wait, I have a key to the dungeon. He pulls out a key. He goes, this key was given to me and I was promised it would unlock any lock. And he goes and he unlocks it. And he and Faithful leave the dungeon of despair. In the name of the key, anybody remember? remember? What's the name of the key, remember? It's promise. The promises of God in the gospel unlock the dungeon of despair but he forgot that he had it. He quit fighting. But he remember, I have it. I claim these promises. Solomon is doing the opposite. So if you want to read the Bible as examples, it's not always the best way to read Scripture, but if you do, Solomon's a negative example at this point. Do not do this. He has made the decision to stop fighting the despair. Perhaps he was, you know, he was gifted with wisdom. We know that. Perhaps he's looking at his sons and he's seeing that they aren't Solomon is second generation wealthy. David was the dynasty founder. Solomon was the nation builder. And he's looking at this third generation going, you know that old adage, right? Rags to riches to rags in three generations. Maybe Solomon smelled that coming because he did leave everything to his oldest son, Rehoboam. If you know the story, Rehoboam was so foolish, he lost 80% of everything Solomon achieved within like a week. And we know such things happen, don't we? What's the point of working so hard? What's the point of giving your life to something if you're only going to lose control and give it to Captain Intelligence here? It's enough to cause despair. But owning that reality of despair and frustration is a great way to love our neighbors. It's one of the ways Ecclesiastes is such a refreshing book because it points to the realities and asks the questions that sometimes we're afraid to answer, to ask. But in a, real, in a world of real frustration, with real people, with real despair under the sun, real questions about death and purpose and significance point people to the only real answer in Jesus Christ. But if we're too afraid to bring up the real questions, how will we ever get them to want the real answer? Ecclesiastes helps us do that because life under the sun is toil. But with God, there's joy in the journey, which is right where the text of Ecclesiastes goes next. He goes from despair under the sun to joy with the sun. Look with me at verse 24 and 25. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, there's a big change here. No longer is he talking under the sun. Now, as he say, under God. 
You know, Martin Luther has this anecdote, supposedly he said, it's attributed to him. He said, if I knew the world ended tomorrow, I would plant an apple tree today. And that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. Smacked with the reality of death destroying any legacy he might have, he tells us that since death is coming, plant your tree. Faced with the reality of a cursed world where things don't work, we cry out, where is God? And Ecclesiastes answers, he's with you in ordinary life. Remember that movie, The Incredibles? You know, it's been like 20 years since that movie came out. I know, right? I, exactly. I know. I was like, what? And remember how Bob is like this insurance guy, and he's just miserable, and he's, he's living in the past in his glory days, and he's ignoring what his kids do. He's just checked out of life, and his wife like grabs him like, Bob, this is your real life. It's happening right now, and you are missing it. That's what the grace of God whispers to Solomon in his despair. Instead of being so worked up about a potential future, why don't you live with God in the actual present today? Have joy where you are. See, there's basically two kinds of people here when you read this text. The first person looks at the toil in their life and they see God with them in it and they're fulfilled. The second person tries to make a God out of their toil and they never find fulfillment. Because we want soul satisfaction, what the Bible calls rest, and we're trying to squeeze that out of our work, but it only leads to despair. That's what Solomon tells us here. As Ecclesiastes asks the questions, the rest of the Bible answers. And so the answer that Ecclesiastes points to is the gift of God in Jesus where he can bring deep joy to our hearts. Look with me. Boys and girls, haven't talked to you most of the sermon. Sorry about that. This has been kind of some heavy stuff, but I want to look at your verse 24 together, boys and girls who are still in here. Okay, let's find that there on page 11 there near the bottom. Here's what it says. The best thing for us really is to have joy in our daily life, especially our work. God wants to give us that joy as a gift. So boys and girls still here. Let me see your eyes. There we go. There we go. Do you think God wants you to be happy? I didn't as a child. I really didn't. I grew up in the church and I thought God was mean. I thought God was joyless. I felt guilty when I was having any fun. I struggle with that even to this day, that God actually wants me to be happy and have joy. And I'm so glad, boys and girls, that he put verses like this in the Bible to make it clear that he does want you to have joy. He even tells us how, boys and girls. Let's look at the next verse, verse 25. It says, we must look past this life because who can be happy without God? So you can be happy with Jesus. God can make you happy in his son. When we trust Jesus as our savior, he'll bring us joy. When we walk with God, when we rest in his acceptance and grace in the gospel, when the gospel itself is our anchor in the daily toil and frustrations of life, it gives us joy and it gives us contentment. Those are two interesting words, huh? Joy and contentment. Those things mess up our culture. I mean, have you noticed the social pressure not to have joy or not to be content? I mean, think about this. If you're in a line with somebody and it's been a long line and you're bored, maybe your phone battery ran out, so you actually have to you know, engage IRL. Um, 
Thank you. So if you want to engage this person, have you ever noticed how the easiest way to start a conversation with a stranger is to complain about something? How messed up is that? You want to have interesting conversations, live with joy and contentment. People notice. This was one of our main strategies for making people curious about Christianity when we were church planting in Boston is to be purposeful with our joy, to not hide it because people crave joy. And then our entire economy is based on never being content. You got to keep consuming out there. And so when you have palpable joy and contentment, people will want to know, what do you got going on? Because they're living in Ecclesiastes. So let's wrap this up. Verse 26, look with me together. He says, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Notice what God gives here, wisdom, knowledge, joy to those who please him. Here's how I put it for the kids there, verse 26. God gives his people joy in their work, but to sinners he gives the job of gathering blessings for God's people to have. That frustrates sinners, like trying to catch the wind in their hands. Okay, in case that's still a little confusing, Jesus himself sums up verse 26 for us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, those who please God, don't have to toil. God gives them everything as a fatherly gift of inheritance. So if that's what those who please God get, well, the next logical question is, well, how do we please God, right? How do I get that stuff? And this is the most important question for you today. This answer determines if you will find contentment or joy or if you'll walk out of here in despair and more frustration. So I ask you again, how do you please God? How'd you answer just then in your mind? Was your answer religious behavior, being moral, voting a certain way, dressing a certain way? Or mine, you know, not laughing or having fun because God's too serious for that. When you answered that question in your own heart, were you looking to your own actions, to your own behavior, to your own works, your own toil? Toiling to earn God's pleasure is frustrating and it leads to despair. We can't please God with our toil because God demands perfection. How's that going for you? Mine's not, mine's not doing too well. How's your perfection doing? See, and the message of grace in the gospel is that Jesus toiled to be perfect for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. His toil earns our salvation that we are given by grace. So again, how do you please God? You can't, but you can place your faith and trust in Jesus who did please God, and he will change you. He will forgive you. He will make you righteous and in him, God will adopt you, and he will say to you, you, he will say to you, I am well pleased. Jesus worked so we can have rest from our toil. Now, Christians, the frustrations of our life will be made up for one day, someday by Jesus. He will make us whole. 
But for today, he also gives us grace to deal with life. In Jesus, God will give you joy where you are in your ordinary life. This is so earthy and so practical. We forget that, don't we? We're so used to hearing this message that we forget it's this earthy. You know, one of the very first things Jesus did after his resurrection was to reconnect with his friends who at work by having just a simple meal with them. He showed up on the beach during their lunch break, cooked him a meal, and they ate together. Remember that? It's kind of anticlimactic is why it sticks out. I mean, death is still waiting for every single one of them except Jesus. The world still needs saving. There was no church started yet. The political leaders were gearing up to do their worst. Life under the sun was still there. And yet, one of the very first things the resurrected Lord did was to live out, verse 26, to give joy to his people in their work. See, we fight the despair around us by having joy in Jesus So Christians in the room, let go of that guilt and shame that you have because you see the despair and you feel the despair and your battle against despair goes up and down. Let go of that guilt and shame and see that that battle itself is God's grace to you. He gives you the resources to have joy in that struggle. And non-Christians in the room, would you like the resources to deal with despair in this life? I know all sorts of things offer you those resources, I know. But they'll take all your toil and they'll give you nothing in return. But when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, he will empower you as one of his first responders commissioned to go out and fight that despair. Why do you want that? You know you do. Confess Jesus as Lord even in these moments. Let's pray together. And gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that a text like this is hard. We're conditioned to deny the dark realities of life. We, we somehow have convinced ourselves it makes us a bad witness or disappoints you or something. So Lord, it's hard for us to be honest about how hard life under the sun really is. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that candor so that we can see how robust of a Savior Jesus really is and that we can bask in his true beauty because we see the real ugly around us. And we pray, Lord, that from that healthy, safe place, you would then help us to love our neighbors who are harassed by sin, death, and being beaten by despair. And would you give us the love and the courage to acknowledge that reality with them and show them what Jesus can do for them. We pray this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.